Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey my friends, I'm so excited to tell you that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, How to Overcome and Lead After Being Knocked Down is now available for pre-order. You can go and do that now. The link will be in the show notes below. I would greatly appreciate each and every one of you if you could go and pre-order a copy right now. The book will be officially launched September 27th of this year, but you can go and pre-order a copy of the book right now and I hope that you all consider doing that. All right. Let's do the show. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the story box together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. The day has finally arrived, my friends. I have been so excited to release this conversation with you all. My guest today is the very famous actor, writer, YouTuber, comedian, television star, Josh Peck. Now, many of you may have grown up with uh, watching the show Drake and Josh. I know I certainly did. So, so many great memories over my grandparents' place, sitting on the couch, watching the show, drinking pub squash, which is an Australian drink for those American people, and watching the, the show, which was honestly astounding and I thought it was pretty funny. But this conversation gets really real pretty quick. Josh and I talk about his new book, Happy People Are Annoying, which is a wonderfully candid memoir from one of the most recognizable faces of a generation. In this book, which I have read and I loved every single page, I'm not joking, it is well written, it is funny, it is emotional, there is so much uh, great moments and stories in this book. I highly, highly recommend that you guys go and get a copy of it. But for the first time ever, Josh reflects on his late teens and early twenties, raised by a single mother and some of the stories about him and his mum. They're crazy. Uh, I'll let you guys hear about them and, and read about them in, in the book, especially with his dad too. That's another story entirely. And coming of age under a spotlight that could be both invigorating and cruel. Josh filled the cratering hole in his self-worth with copious amounts of food. Many of you would know that Josh was rather overweight in those, in those shows. Uh, Josh, uh, he also filled that cratering hole, not just with food, but with television, drugs, and all the other trappings of, of young stardom, he says, until he realized the only person standing in his way was, guess what, himself. Today, with a string of lead roles on hit television shows and movies, many of you would have seen him in the new Turner and Hooch. Today, uh, Josh is more than happy. He's finally enthusiastically content. And his new book, Happy People Are Annoying, is a culmination of years of learning, growing and finding bright spots in the scary parts of life. And I highly, highly encourage you guys again to get this book. You will thank me later. It's great. <laughs> uh, but this, 
conversation as well. I had a lot of fun. I was laughing a lot, probably too much during this conversation because Josh is hilarious. But we also talk about some of the things that he did struggle with growing up with, say, for example, him growing up without a father and what that was like for him also growing up with and what he did to fill this massive void in his in his life. And we also talk about how he was able to turn it all around. And now he's quite happy to be vulnerable and, and share quite a bit for you guys. And I'm forever grateful for that. So if you do get something from this conversation, my friends, and I hope that you do, please share it around with your friends and family. Don't forget to leave a rating and review if you enjoy this conversation over on Apple Podcasts, and you can even do it now on Spotify too, I believe. It literally takes like 10 seconds, not even, of your day, and it goes a long way in making sure that more and more people see the story box and get to hear all these incredible stories from the amazing people that are on the show. Also, don't forget uh, my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, How to Overcome and Lead After Being Knocked Down, is now available for pre-order, the link will be in the show notes below to make it easy for you. I hope that you guys pre-order a copy. I would be most grateful and I hope that you guys do get helped by reading the book in some way, shape or form. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to journey with me into the story box as we listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice, the funny stories of none other than Josh Peck. Jay, what a what a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I was intimidated when I saw the list of guests that you've had in the past and I was like, listen, I'm I'm pretty incredible, but I don't know if I'm I'm Matthew McConaughey. I don't know if I'm Tony Robbins. So I want to thank you, Jay, for slumming it with good old Josh Peck. Nah, man, I feel honored to be able to <laughs> unbox your story. Like honestly, I, I feel uh, a little bit under my britches, <laughs> to be honest. So I'm, I'm including you in the McConaughey, Tony Robbins sphere of, of incredible people. Because, you know, like I said in the intro, I grew up with watching you and Drake and Josh and then more recently Turner and Hooch, which I thought was a great show, by the way. Then you're, oh. you're, you're in Ice Age. I didn't mention that. Um, but just being able to, I got to, I got the pleasure of reading uh, some of your story, which is, honestly insane man so i can't wait to to dive further into that with you in just a moment but before we do man my very first question for you is a question i love asking all my guests at the very start which is what does success look like for you oh that's such a great question i you know being a 35 year old sort of quasi man i say in my book like I, i've achieved man status or at the very least the height and weight of a full grown man and, um, and so my idea of success has, um, I think understandably changed. And I, I think like many people was obsessed with finish lines my whole life. If I hit this number on the scale, if I get this much success, if I work with these many impressive people, if I, you know, date enough interesting, cool, attractive people, like it was always this idea of then I'll be happy. Once I, I accomplish X, then I will finally fill that hole in the soul. And it wasn't until I sort of pivoted and shifted and realized that I was putting the cart before the horse. I, I wanted the result, but I didn't know how to get there. And when I really allowed a good life to be the result of good living, and I started listening to that part of my brain that was there before I was worried about making a living or about what you thought of me. When I started allowing that voice to be a little bit more of the driver in my life is when suddenly I started getting all those things I always I always wanted. So now success for me is about like having enough time to be with my family while also doing something that I think is um is is creatively, you know, stimulating. Mm. I love that answer, man. And you also talk about that happiness isn't enough. Like we need to find contentment. Why is happiness not enough when so many people are striving to be quite happy? I, I think again, it, you know, it's, it's a really good question is that happiness to me always seemed like a bumper sticker, yeah. like quiet your mind, you know, or, or, 
or, you know, we live in Instagram culture now. So it's always like hustle the, you know, the 25 hour day. Um, and it's all these sort of platitudes that were fed nonstop. But the real question is, how do we get there? And for me, happiness always seemed like this thing that you were either born with or you were. And I felt unique from as far back as I can remember and not good, unique, not, you know, Beyonce unique. I was like, (laughs) Oh no. Like it seemed as though I wasn't handed the same manual to get through life that my peers were handed that things hurt me more. I was ultra sensitive, ultra analytical, constantly in my head. And to top it all off, I felt very powerless. Like I didn't know how to direct myself towards the things that I really um, was passionate about. And so it, it occurred to me finally, once I started to get those things that I, you know, that happiness is sort of this transient idea that as good as, as quickly as the good things come, the bad things come and they just are sort of in this messed up ballet for the rest of your life. Mm. But if I'm not reactive to it and I can kind of allow these things to flow in and out of my life, I can find sort of this level of chill on a good day. But if like I'm at the line at the grocery store and you've got 13 items in the 12 item or less line, it might all go out the window and I'm going to have to have a serious talk with you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i love that man like you also you also mentioned in the book which i think was uh something that i resonated with a lot you've got the very high highs and you got the very low lows like it's keeping up with the trend of that i think that's kind of what a lot of people are sort of chasing they're, they're chasing the high highs in life they're they're kind of on that living roller coaster ride but they're they're not expecting the lows or they don't know how to deal with the lows when they do come and one thing that I loved about your book was from the very beginning, you open up with this very vulnerable aspect of how you grew up. You weren't handed all the cards at all. So would you be comfortable enough with sharing with how you grew up, some of the lessons that your mother, your amazing mother taught you <laughs> while growing up? Because <laughs> it's a wild story, man. Oh, wow. I mean, yeah, you know, it's interesting because to your point, like I've, I've certainly grown up for, for the better part of my life in, in the public eye. And yet because I'm 35, so I'm on that weird line of millennial and Gen X Gen, and then like Zoomers and Gen Z, I was still sort of trying to honor that old guard of Hollywood where you keep your personal side mysterious and you project this image. But what we've seen through social media and YouTube and reality is that like people hunger for honesty from the people that they watch on TV or in movies. They, they want a real moment. And I find that resonates with, with people sometimes even more so than a great performance is a truly honest connection. So that was sort of what inspired me to write this book was this idea that like I had never told my story without joking about it. And while the book's funny and light in areas, I was like, I'm really going to have to sort of let people in on, what I've walked through and hopefully they can find some sort of identification through reading it. So to your point, I, you know, I, I grew up with a mom who had me at 43. My mom's 77. Now she's single mom. I never met my dad. We struggled a lot in New York, which isn't, you know, isn't unique with a, with a single parent, um, especially being a woman in the eighties and nineties. And she certainly had to be a, a lioness and, figuring out how to provide for this kid. And, and we spent a lot of time, you know, we were pretty, I would say uh, a majority of the time we were pretty middle-class. And then there were certainly times where we were dead broke and wondering, you know, where we were going to sleep that night. And I think that was what inspired me to sort of take my life into my own hands at a young age. Um, I think people are always trip out that they're like, you were doing stand-up comedy at 10 or, had your own TV show at 14. But for me, I knew that I had this talent and it was starting to work for me. I was, I was seeing some success. And then I had this jet fuel behind me of like, I don't ever want to have this feeling again. I I never want to feel, I never want to wonder where I'm going to sleep that night or worry that my mom and I are not going to be okay. And being an actor, luckily it's, you know, as a kid, you can work at a coffee shop, or, you know, there's, 
not a lot of, of jobs that afford you a big salary. But if you're an actor and it works, you can make enough money to you know support you and your mom. Mm. How did not having a father growing up contribute to, to your identity? I, you know, it's only been revealed to me through years and years and, and sort of peeling that onion and, and you think you're done. And then, you know, you'll be sitting watching, uh, you know, some movie with like a very patriarchal great dad and you'll start crying and you're like, why am I weeping? (laughs) What (laughs) I, um, you know, I think as a kid, I didn't resent not having a dad. I resented God for making me so different because I was, you know, uh, by the time I was 16, I was 300 pounds and I had a single mom and we were sort of the black sheep of our family. You know, uh, my extended family was very educated and very kind of um, just took a traditional path. And we were the creative um, sort of I don't know how you describe my mom's a headhunter, which is if that term is a universal, you know, in Australia, it's basically someone who finds someone jobs, but you know, she lived paycheck to paycheck and she'd also like be, you know, doing, she'd go to department stores and sing with the piano player at, you know, Macy's. And so she loved to perform and I loved to perform. So, um, early on, I think like, I just was so tired of being different. And, and then as I got older, I think that I I had always told myself that I have this great mom and she loves me almost too much. And I know plenty of people who would say to me, oh, you never met your dad. I wish I never met my dad. (laughs) So I, I figured I never missed something I didn't have. And yet in my twenties, when I found out that he had passed away, I got this overflowing sort of this, this wave of sadness. And I had to mourn this guy who I never knew. And I was so pissed because I was like, I can't believe I have to now feel sad for this guy that I never had a relationship with. So in many ways, I think it was these subtle ways in which it had woven itself into my experience, whether it meant that I would hold all men in my life to an unattainable standard because I would elevate them as these like quasi father figures, but they could never live up because they didn't agree to that weird agreement I had made in my mind or, um, and also doing the work on myself about what a man was to me Mm. and collecting apostles and examples of men that I could look up to and not feeling like I had to sort of live up to whatever the standard of, of, of men are that I grew up with watching in, in movies. Mm. I was going to ask you now at the age you are now, you are a father at the moment, which is awesome, man. You grew up without a father. So what do you believe after all the work that you've done, all the research, looking at different males or men in the world, I guess, what do you now believe makes a real man? Well, I think that um, being able to squat at least 400 pounds (laughs) and taking a lot of creatine, a lot, like scoops. um, No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, I've been blessed with an incredibly wonderful father-in-law who I think weirdly was sort of like the universe gifting me this sort of role model. Um, later on in my life. And I think we grew up, especially like when I grew up in the 90s and and the 2000s with this idea that like the alpha male was just like this stereotypical guy who drinks and wants to fight and, you know, is is gross around girls and is just kind of like a douchebag. But to me, what I believe like a true alpha is, is a guy who can quietly lead, who cares for the pack, who puts people before them. Um, I, he'd hate that I would even, that I'm even calling him out this much, but (laughs) one thing I really appreciate about my father-in-law is like at every meal, if, if it's sort of buffet style, so everyone's sort of filling their plate, everyone is going to be eating before he does. I can't believe it. 
I sometimes want to be like, are you hungry? Like I'm on seconds. No, I'm kidding. But like, <laughs> he, you know, he, he puts people before himself and in a weird way. And I love this adage that I learned in, in 12 step, this idea of like, help your fellows boat to the other side and yours too will cross. Yeah. And I think that's what a real man does. You know, he puts people before himself and, and he's taken care of as a result. Mm. I love all that. I agree with everything you just mentioned. It's also that humility aspect. I think, yeah, being of service, all those aspects, and also having, I guess, an inner strength more so than an outer strength. I think both are important because, uh, yeah, people look up to you. They see you for who you really are. But then who are you really in those quiet moments? You know, like your character traits, your integrity, all those aspects I've, I've found they form a real man. So if you can align them together and obviously, you know, eating hundreds of <laughs> a lot of food and, and all the creatine, all that sort of stuff. All Supplementation. <laughs> you know, when I was starting Turner and Hooch, uh, which was a show I just did on Disney Plus, I... I was, you know, number one on the call sheet and it was this, I had been the lead of things before, but this was like a big proper, big budget Disney project. And, and I asked him for advice, my, my father-in-law, cause, cause you know, he played professional football and he was a quarterback. And so he had been the leader before. And basically what he said to me was make the mistakes your own and make your wins everyone's. So <laughs> If someone messes up, take it on yourself. If you mess it up, it's if you mess up, it's on you. And if you win, it's because of everyone else. And I think that's that's a good way to lead. That is a really good way to lead. I've never heard that saying before. I love it. I'm gonna frame it. <laughs> I'm gonna steal it and frame it. <laughs> that's Please. a good one. That's a really good one, actually. Uh, Josh, I want to go back a little bit because you mentioned that you grew up and you were feeling different. Was that because of what you saw around you? Were people telling you that you were different or is it more on the inside? Like you actually knowing that you were different? Yeah, I think that, I think it's both. And I think I certainly have a propensity for the volume to be very high in my own mind. And I'm sure no one can, can uh, identify with that feeling, but I certainly blow things out of proportion between my years. But in the same respect, the evidence, there was enough evidence there to say, you know, I was this overweight kid. I was into musical theater and obsessed with television. And at that age, it wasn't um, of the same value that it was even when I became a teenager. Like, what was cool was Power Rangers and Michael Jordan, you know, like that was it. There weren't even that many like Jewish athletes that I could look up to. I'm like, yeah, there was like Sandy Kopacks, but I think he played baseball in the sixties. And so all of sort of the social currency, the, we have money and we like, we are the house that you want to come sleep over at. Cause we've got the nice house and the nice stuff and toys and vacation. I didn't have that. And I didn't have, you know, I wasn't great at sports, so I didn't have any of the things that sort of elevated you at that age. And so, yeah, I knew, I knew in a weird way that my superpower was performing, that it protected me, that I had sort of procured this ability as a necessity. You know, they say that funny people are usually funny uh, for very unfunny reasons. And that was it for me. But it, it, whenever I, I've, you know, uh, in the past, whenever I've uh, sort of, I'll, I'll meet an actor or something and they'll be like very good looking and very like sharp and in shape. And they'll try to go sort of like tit for tat with me with comedy. And I want to say, listen, you're probably not as funny as me, but with a face like that, I wouldn't be either. <laughs> like, I'd be like, I would trade in a second for what you have, but <laughs> You know, so yeah, I think I just knew instinctively that like I needed to have this this superpower, something I cultivated to give me some some social currency. Mm. And for those people that don't know, you grew up as a kind of like a 
child star, teen star, quite quickly you you rose to stardom. So can you share the story of how that all happened? Because it's quite funny. Absolutely, yeah. So it, it sort of came at this moment. I was I was 11 years old. My mom and I had sort of run out of money again. And I remember sort of the veil of adolescence falling and just making this vow to myself that I was going to figure out how to get us out of this. And my mom in that moment said, you know, there's this performing arts high school. They're holding auditions. School will be back in session in a week or two. Why don't you try? And I get accepted into this performing arts high school with alumni like Alicia Keys and Claire Danes and Jesse Eisenberg. So suddenly I'm thrust. It's no longer like this hobby. I'm surrounded by operators and people who are like making cold, hard cash from doing the thing that I love. And I start, you know, auditioning all the time, whether it was at Nickelodeon or kind of anywhere that would have me. And I'm going to performing arts high school. And I wind up booking this Nickelodeon movie called Snow Day, which was with Chevy Chase and Chris Elliott and Gene Smart. And I was on set one day and I'm 12 years old in Canada, never been out of the country. And the president of Nickelodeon winds up taking this liking to me and I'm telling him jokes and he's cracking up. And my mom sort of sidles over to me and says, you know, that's the president of Nickelodeon. You should tell him you want to be on this show, all that, which mm. for anyone who doesn't know, was like a SNL for kids. And it was the ultimate show for me growing up. I just wanted to be on it so bad and they wanted nothing to do with good old Josh Peck. <laughs> and I, I wound up mentioning it to him. I don't know why I had the balls to tell him that he should put me on that show, but I did. And nine months later, he put me on the Amanda show, which was like the sequel to all that. And uh, it was with Amanda Bynes and Drake, who would later become my partner on Drake and Josh. And it was sort of like Amanda got the spinoff from all that. And then Drake and I got the spinoff from the Amanda show. So between 12 and 15, I got my first movie. And by 15, I was living in Los Angeles with a TV show with my name in it. Mm-hmm. And what was it like for you, man, growing up with that sort of stardom, that sort of spotlight thrust upon you? Did that contribute to the weight gain or some other things that contributed to it? I I think, you know, we were, when we were making Drake and Josh, it was like this hit show, but on a kid's network. So it was very specific and there was no social media, right? So if you're on Stranger Things or even a big kid show today, if it premieres on a Friday, by that Monday, you've got, you know, 10 million followers on Instagram just to start, right? And for us, we didn't get that sort of um, value right away that once the show was over, we could then walk away and go, you know, sort of the world was our oyster. So in some ways, we were having this specific existence. And in other ways, I was doing this nine to five job and I would go home every night and like hang out with my best friend, Len, which I think is what sort of weirdly kept me slightly um, grounded and not too obsessed with, with all of it. But yeah, I think like I was certainly heavy and, and TV and movies have great snack tables. So I'm sure that didn't help me at all. And but the reality was I've been stuffing my feelings from as far back as I can remember and food and, and whatnot was this great sort of solution. And then eventually once I lost weight and got in shape, but I had the same brain, I had to kind of level up. Hey friends, sorry to disturb you from listening to this amazing conversation, but I just wanted to let you know that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, How to Overcome and Lead After Being Knocked Down is now available for pre-orders. I'll make sure the link is in the show notes below. So if you do want to learn how to lead your life in the very best way possible and you love stories and you want to learn more about my story, the living roller coaster ride that it is, then go and pre-order a copy right now. The book will be uh, available everywhere books are sold September 27th. But but if you can go and pre-order it now, I would be so, so grateful. All right, my friends, let's get back into the incredible story. 
So why did you want to lose all the weight? And was it difficult for you to make that decision or was it sort of an easier transition for you? I mean, I grew up going to Weight Watchers meetings with my mom. Like I'd be sitting on my Game Boy and, you know, wondering why we always had to go to like, you know, 12 step meetings for Overeaters Anonymous or, you know, like literally I, I was like, why, why, do, why are we always in church basements and like hospital like rec rooms? <laughs> like, um, it just so I, I could see through my mom and through myself, I was like, oh, the pecs don't do well with food. It's a menacing force to us. And I, I knew that if I wanted to get to where I wanted as an actor, that no matter what, like people would give me such high praise and the respect of they'd say, oh, you're heavy. Like you're going to be like Chris Farley or John Belushi or, but they weren't comparing my talent because those guys were geniuses. They were just comparing my girth, that there was like one lane for big dudes. and. I quickly realized that if I wanted to be a great actor, if I wanted to have the opportunity to play different parts, I I couldn't stay at this size. And I talk about it in the book. When I was 16, I wound up doing this movie called Mean Creek. And I played this bully. And I was incredibly misunderstood. And the movie was so well received. And it was the first time that I'd ever played a real character and not sort of the typical big guy, best friend or, or bully. I was a bully, but he was very multi-layered. And once I did that, I realized that like, I can't wait around for 10 years for the next great part for someone who looks like me to come around. Mm. And I really wanted to kiss a girl that helped too. But <laughs> so all those things combined, I, yeah, I was, I was 17 when I, when I sort of began to lose weight and it, it took me two years to lose about 120 pounds. Wow. I mean, I can understand, I didn't go the fat sense, but I went the complete opposite. So I, I, I had this bad relationship with food as a whole. So I completely understand that. Uh, so what I would do is I would binge eat and then uh, spit and chew and then it contributed. Wow. I, I would exercise. I'd have all these problems that just a very, very bad relationship with, with food in general. It became a nasty addiction and obsession. So I just exercise until I lost so much weight. I got to like 53 kilos, which is, I don't know how many pounds, but it's like, I was a stick. I was 3% body fat. Uh, I ended up with major complications. So I, I understand the the, the side effects of, of wanting or just this bad relationship with food and uh, using food as your, your comfort in some way. And um, it's not, it's not a fun thing, man. So, but yeah, I went the complete opposite. So I just wanted to, to, to make that <laughs> connection, but it is, it is tough, man. And isn't that so interesting? And, and I feel like everyone has some version of a story, like the one you just said, like we approached, our, our issues with food differently, but it didn't make it any more or less real because you didn't have to deal with being completely overweight, but it was still, it still terrorized you to a certain extent. Yeah. How's your relationship at the moment or what do you do these days to keep those, I guess you call them demons at bay? I, um, I, I you know, I only eat things that are gray. No, I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I love it. <laughs> I, I've been lucky, you know, when, when uh, I I've been sober for the last 13 years. And so I was able to sort of put the plug in the drug in the, in the, the plug in the drug. That'll be the sequel to my book. Um, <laughs> I love that title. <laughs> I, I mean, drugs first, and alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> you can sort of, just just stop and you never have to revisit that and that that's such a relief but food can be such a um a tough um sort of field to navigate but for me i've been able to keep it in check all that being said i never wake up in the mood for a salad 
but I kind of, it's become second nature to where I'm constantly sort of eyeballing things. I roughly know the calorie count of everything that I eat. And, uh, and I work out five to six days a week, it, mostly for the mental part of it, um, because I love that, that sort of free endorphin rush. But also it's become, you know, over the last 15 years, it's, it's just become part of my DNA. And so I've found a good balance where I'm not terrorized by food and I'm able to indulge certain times, but overall sort of keep my weight in check. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way, man. Exercise is a big part of it. I get up at 4 a.m. in the morning, believe it or not. And no way. 100%. Yeah. I got this philosophy in life, which I'd love to share with you. So it is, if I can beat the sun, then no matter what comes my way during the day, I can beat that too. Because if you think about it, the sun is always constant. And things may not go the way we expect or plan during the day, but as long as I am setting myself up for positive things like exercise, meditation, prayer, all those aspects, first thing in the morning before something that is constant that has has even risen yet, then I'm ahead. I'm ahead of life in my in my mind. And so whatever comes my way during that day, doesn't matter what it is, I feel like I'm ready, like I'm confident. I've done what I needed to do early, early in the day. So, and then it's kind of like this transition period at the end of the day, when the sun sets, it's kind of like, okay, if today wasn't so great, I didn't expect it to be the best or whatever's happened and I don't feel great, then there's always going to be a tomorrow and then mm. do the same thing again and again. And it just, it, it makes me feel great, man. That mental health aspect for me is important and it keeps those, those demons for me at bay. And yeah, I just thought I'd, I'd share that with you. So hopefully that helps somehow. <laughs> Are there ever times when you're up at 4am where you just cry a little? <laughs> just a quick one. Yes. Like. <laughs> I'll, I'll admit it. <laughs> there are some, there are those days where I'm just like, I'm in absolute agony, but those are the days that I know that I'm like, okay, I need to do this. That's the day I need to push. <laughs> but and do you fun. hit a workout right away? No. So uh, 30 minutes is kind of like my, my time to wake myself up. So I open a book, uh, pray, meditate, that sort of thing. And then uh, around 4.30 in the morning, I'm out the door, pounding the pavement. And yeah, I usually get home around 7-ish in the morning. So yeah, it's, it, it's nice, man. Like it, it's a... And because it's like first thing in the morning, right? Even though it's painful to some extent, um, I find it freeing because no one else is really awake during that time. It's peaceful. And yeah, I just, in, I enjoy it, man. So that's just what works for me in a way. And you're running for two and a half hours? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I used to run for two and a half hours. Uh, which was absolutely insane. But now I just run for like 47 minutes and then I do probably a 40 minute CrossFit style, high intensity workout. Um, so that's sort of my, my drug of choice. <laughs> if I can use wow. that. <laughs> yeah. I'm that's fascinated me. on an empty stomach on an empty stomach. So I go fasted. Wow. And then you have your first meal like at seven. I actually have my first meal around 11, 1130 in the morning. So my, the way my brain works, I'll try and explain it for you. So my last meal would be around six o'clock the night before I digest everything, get up, do my fasted cardio workout, that sort of thing. But I feel so alive. Like my brain thrives off not having anything in my stomach until later in the day. And I feel like that's what I need. So I get, energy from, I guess, fat stores, <laughs> but I'm usually the mornings, man, is my thing. Morning time. If you get me late at night, I'm like, I'm useless. <laughs> I, I, I'm just terrible. Like don't even bother uh, contacting me at night time because <laughs> you're probably going to get some weird like tangent. I don't make any sense at all, that sort of thing. But yeah, man, that that's really how it, it works for me. But uh, it might not work for other people. What 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 do you normally do? Is it sort of fasted cardio, fasted weights, um, first I, meal, breakfast? 
I mean, I don't want to brag, but I'm up at 3 a.m. So oh, I don't, don't feel bad. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, my God. I, uh, you do the wrong I, workout. Up, <laughs> I wake up at like quarter to seven on a good day. That's when my son wakes up. Most of the time I wake up with him and try to let my wife get a couple extra minutes of sleep. Um, I prefer, I prepare his, his dinner the night before, or I'm sorry, I prepare, prepare his lunch the night before for school. And, but I, I make his breakfast. We'll chat a little play. Usually he'll watch Sesame street or something while he's eating. And I just love the whole routine of getting him ready. Um, I try to be, you know, I try not to check emails. I usually don't succeed at that. And, and all of that. And then out the door by, you know, a quarter to eight and he's at school by eight Oh five. So I'm, I'm, and then it's most of the time it's a direct drive about 40 minutes to my boxing gym. And if I'm there at 9am, it's like, I just know the reason I started actually going to this boxing gym when I did this um, action movie with Chris Hemsworth <laughs> 15 years ago called Red Dawn. Cause he trained there and he was like, you know, mate, you have to come here. And, and I did, and I fell in love with it. And, and I, what I love about it is that there's there the only mirror there is for shadow boxing. Mm-hmm. Um, no one cares. Everyone like there, the amount of shit talking you can hear at a boxing gym is just, I mean, it's, it's too good. And, and it's like, I mean, literally they should hold, um, for the presidential elections in America, they should hold like the uh, like town hall meetings at a boxing gym. Cause one guy will be like, Biden's the worst. And another guy will be like, best president we ever had. And another guy will be like, both of you are felons. Who cares? You can't vote anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh man. <laughs> so it's just like, uh, like I get to work out and, and it's all old school you know, there's very few machines. It's all like kettlebells, um, you know, powerlifting, boxing workouts, heavy bag. And so, yeah, it's like, but I, I, I agree with you. And I heard Jeff Bezos say this as well. He's like, I try to save my high IQ meetings for early in the day because I know that's when I'm sharpest. And especially now at 35 and with a kid, like if I've had a big lunch, like I'm mm-hmm. probably not going to be great at four. No. Yeah. It's no. a, it's a, I want a nap <laughs> sort of thing. Yeah. And, and man, you've, you've got a, you got a family. I mean, that's the difference between you and I is I don't have a family yet. I'm still, I'm 25 at the moment. So I've still got quite a, a ways to go. Um, but you mentioned something there with what you, what your routine is with your son. And I'm curious, did you ever think that you would be a father one day? And what is it like knowing that you are a father? You know, I, I wonder if other guys who grow up without a dad have the same fear, but specifically with having a boy, I, I was so worried because I knew that I didn't have any reference mm. and I didn't have any lessons to draw from, from a male influence. And I remember a buddy of mine said something to the effect of like, being a father is about being there for your child and reassuring them that they have to do these things where they might get hurt, but you will be there for them throughout the whole experience. And I'm pretty sure he said that as it pertains to learning how to ride a bike, but I used it as a gigantic metaphor. (laughs) Why not? (laughs) (laughs) And I, you know, I remember like when I, when people would always ask, why don't, why don't you want to meet your dad? And when I was, you know, in my twenties and, and I, I always said, well, I did the hard part in the sense of I had gotten sober from drugs and alcohol and my career was constantly up and down, but there was enough evidence to, to present that I would probably figure out something that I wasn't going to ever be destitute, God willing. And I said, you know, I, I know what he gets. Like he gets this like son that doesn't need anything from him. Like I, I did, I got through the hard part and it was hard. And I said, but what do I get? And he, I knew he was older at this time. He was like in his eighties. And, and then of course, you know, before I knew it, he had passed away and and there was a slight, a small time where I felt as though maybe I had missed that opportunity, but 
sort of the full circle of all of it was that like in being a good present father to my son, it allowed me to forgive my dad because I knew that it's not like he got out scot-free that even by him not being there, like he, he had to miss out on all the things that I got to be present for with my son. He had to miss out with me. And yeah, I'm sure he got to sleep late more often than I do (laughs) and enjoy the pleasures of of not having a, a, a baby. But, you know, I always, I always say to friends who are having kids, cause you get a lot of unsolicited advice and you'll see Jay when, you know, when eventually you're going to have a kid, a lot of people will try to scare you. I don't know. People have sick fascinations with scaring new parents. I don't know what it is. It's like Stockholm syndrome. And they're all like, so when you present that you're going to have a new, when you have a baby on the way, parents like to go sleep now, <laughs> get ready for your life to change forever. And I hate that. And what I tell all new parents and the only advice I give is, it's going to be awesome. Mm. It's going to be awesome. And of course, there are going to be moments of lack of sleep or inconvenience, but it is so overshadowed by like this surplus of cool moments and fulfillment on a level that you've never felt before. And unless you're really obsessed with brunch, kids will not get in the way of things. <laughs> it will only enhance them. And it'll help you to weed out the things that you probably didn't want to do in the first place. So, so yeah. Do you have any regrets? Oh my gosh. I mean, it's so trite to say, right? Like if, if I, if, if I hadn't made all my mistakes, I, you know, I wouldn't be exactly where I am now and I wouldn't trade that. But you know, when I, I got sober um, when I was 21 um, and in between that period of having lost a bunch of weight and finishing Drake and Josh, I got this great opportunity to work with Judd Apatow and, and do this, you know, huge movie. And, and I was not sober and I was not in a place where I could really perform for anyone, especially myself. And I, I squandered that opportunity and it, it was such an honor to, to be given that, especially by someone like Judd, who's, who's one of the rare, you know, sort of great, great people in this business. And, and, and that haunted me for a long time. My performance in Red Dawn haunted me for a long time. Cause again, I was 23 years old doing my best impression of, of Chris Hemsworth. Cause I was like, that's a man. And that's who I have to be. <laughs> Plus he's so nice. He's like actually a good dude. And I'm like, this is it. I'm not enough, but he is. So I, and I'm really good at impressions. Turns out, Jay, I am not good at impressions because <laughs> I sucked. And, uh, and all that, you know, and, and I, all, you know, both of those things specifically, I lamented about if only I had done well in that, what my career would look like, especially during moments where I just, I couldn't book a job to, for the life of me, but but inevitably now I would say, um, no, I, I'm so overpaid. My life is really good. I'm incredibly lucky. And, uh, and so I know that it all led me to this moment. I'm grateful to hear that, man. I really am. And that, in that movie with Judd Apatow, was that Drill Bit Taylor? It was. Oh, I love that movie. <laughs> it's <such laughs> it's a, good a good movie. movie. Yeah. I it's think, a, I think he did it, I good, think, good, man. It was good. It's a good movie. I'm fine in it. I think it was just about, you know, I think I just was late a lot and probably <laughs> I, I could have positioned myself to possibly have, have there be more in my yeah. future. And I, I feel like, I feel like you could, you have, everyone has those moments where you kind of feel like you could have given more, like a better. Um, my grandfather used to always tell me like, if, if I was having, a bad day. He's like, don't worry, there's going to be a tomorrow, but he always instilled in us this attitude of excellence. Uh, and whatever we did, didn't matter if it was a small thing, medium thing or big thing, it's just like you give your best all the time. Mm-hmm. And so I had someone yesterday say to me, cause we're making a joke. I made a mistake during a, during an interview. And I kind of was like beating myself up a little bit for, for doing it. Sure. We're joking about it. But then he goes, you're too hard on yourself, Jay. Like, and I thought about it this morning and I'm like, well, why is that? I think it's because of that, I have that excellence mindset of 
I don't want to stuff up. I know I could have done better. I should have done better. So why didn't mm. I do better? <laughs> but I think it's it's okay at, at the end of the day. Um, I'm going on a little bit of a tangent here, but yeah, I just thought I'd I'd say that like it is it is okay. But we all have those moments in a, in a matter of speaking. Oh, I think you know you you're an incredibly impressive person, and obviously have that like high achieving. I mean, I know from some of your guests like. Ryan Holiday, who's who's a good buddy, who who helped me with this book, just as being kind of like a, yeah, I've I, I've been lucky enough to know Ryan since I was nineteen, and when I got the book deal, I called him and I said, I don't need a ghostwriter, but I don't know what to equate this to in writing a book other than a producer. Mm-hmm. Like I need someone really smart that I can send pages to and I can get notes from them. And he was kind enough to sort of bless me with that um, throughout the book. And and I know you're a fan of his and Robert Greene. And so I, I totally identify with this idea of like, I shouldn't have messed up. I should have been, you know, whether it's more prepared or I should have been able to foresee that happening and adjusted before it happened. Like I, that's okay for the average, but I hold myself to a different standard. And, and I love that, you know, I, there's a great quote by the famous playwright and director, David Mamet. Mm. And he says that the easily shamed will never learn. Yeah. And it's just, you know, I, I just started, I, I had this great year of working pretty consistently with Turner and Hooch and this new show I'm on, How I Met Your Father. And, you know, in showbiz, we have pilot season, which tends to be from February to March, where many of the major networks, Fox and ABC and whatnot, and where they make their shows for the upcoming sort of fall season. So you you find yourself auditioning a lot and there's a lot of opportunity. And I got back in acting class um, this month because what I didn't want to happen was where all of a sudden I had all this opportunity and I felt rusty or I felt kind of a imposter because I hadn't been acting for two or three months Mm. and immediately throwing myself back sort of in the public square, being willing to fail in front of my peers and allowing a teacher to be like, I don't care whether you just had a great year. Like I'm going to point out to you where you could be better. Mm. It's like, there's nothing better than that, but every part of my being wants to run and just stick with what I know I'm good at. Yeah, I understand that, man. It's kind of like doing podcasts with those incredible people. You kind of feel like, am I worthy enough to be in their presence and and talk to them? Like being grateful. I'm incredibly grateful for your time and for you even saying yes. Like that for me is like the the best thing ever. When I got your email, I was like on a huge high. I'm like, no way. He wants to be on the show. <laughs> like, I was, I was like so excited, man. And and to be honest with you, when I heard that you're writing a book, I'm just like, this is going to be awesome. And, you know, speaking about your book at the moment, I wanted to ask you uh, first and foremost, what was the most vulnerable moment for you in writing this book? Wow. I, you know, and I have to give Ryan credit for this, for being a great sort of apostle for me throughout this whole process of writing. But there were moments where I was talking, the chapters where I talk about when I finally decided to lose weight and what it was like doing that in the public eye. Cause it's pretty amazing to see anyone lose 120 pounds. Oh, yeah. And I don't mean amazing just by the accomplishment alone, because it is an accomplishment. It's also just odd yeah. because it's such a drastic change. And, but then to, to have a lot of people marry themselves to the first time they fall in love with you. And for me on TV, that was as this like chubby kid with a high voice who was like super broad and sticky. So when I lost the weight in this public way between seasons two and four of Drake and Josh, in so many ways, I was, um, I enjoyed all the response and how lovely people were and complimentary. But in the same respect, I did get uh, this onslaught of people feeling like you were funnier when you were fat. Stop trying so hard because I had sort of taken this guy away from them that they had loved and they couldn't understand why I would do that. 
Um, so in writing those chapters specifically, I had to really talk honestly about how unhappy I was um, being that overweight and why I inevitably wanted to change that. And, and I don't want to undermine, you know, sort of the beautiful efforts of body positivity and, and people who are, are totally comfortable in their skin if they're on the heavier side and whatnot. Like, that's amazing. My story is just specific to me that for me, it was limiting and it was, it wasn't a choice. It was a byproduct of a lot going on inside that needed to be confronted. Mm. So I think those chapters where I talk about getting sober or being so overweight, again, my instinct was to um, make a joke and pivot. Like, you know, laugh and, and sort of don't lean in. And Ryan was sort of like, if we don't, this could be the funniest book ever. If we don't care about you, if people can't, you know, Ryan said to me when I was writing that chapter, he said, write it so that 16 year old you would cry because yeah. they would feel seen and know that only, you know, the nuance of what it feels like to, mm. to be in that place. So that was, that was certainly, um, an extremely vulnerable place to be. Yeah. I remember reading those, those parts of your book and getting emotional because you go from being absolutely funny and then all of a sudden you get serious and then it's like, Oh, whoops. <laughs> I just dropped, <laughs> which is totally fine. And I, I love all that sort of stuff, which is why I think it's a powerful book, man. And why I think it's going to help a lot of people. And it's the fact that you were vulnerable, you were open and you were honest so I appreciate that. And I know so many others are going to as well when they do read it. But can you tell me uh, the story behind the title, Happy People Are Annoying? <laughs> <laughs> Again, I spent so much of my life making this snap judgment that happy people were just lottery winners. <laughs> like They were privy to some secret that I was not privy to. Yeah. And that, and, and I almost like, became obsessed with my own discomfort and thought it was required to be artful or to accomplish things in that you just have to constantly be uncomfortable. And while, some, you know, bits and parts of that might be true and, and forcing yourself to, to constantly, you know, leave your comfort zone, that's all good stuff. But inevitably what I figured out was like, I was obsessed with this destination when I really had to completely lose myself in the journey. Yeah. And, and even making a movie or a TV show is a great metaphor of that, like for that, because I made Turner and Hooch for eight months and had the greatest time of my life because I was doing the work that I love doing most. I would like, I'd rather be on, there's nothing I'd rather do more than be doing scenes on set for 12, 14. I wouldn't want to get a 12 hour massage, but being on set and doing these scenes for me is joyful. So I spent eight months doing that and it was wonderful. And then the show came out and it did great. And then it didn't get picked up for a second season, but my life, that was an instant, right? Like the premiere was one day and the day we found out the show was canceled was one day, but eight months of my life was spent doing it. So I think that to me is what's most important and why my joy can only be slightly uh, affected by a win or a loss. Mm. And that took me a really long time. Yeah. Where do you want people to get a copy of this new book, man, and learn more about you? You're not hard to find at all, but where do you want people to go more specifically? Oh my gosh. Well, the book comes out March 15th. Uh, you can pre-order it now. There's links in my bios on Twitter at it's Josh Peck on Instagram uh, at Shua Peck, but diesel bookstore is this really cool, like small business bookstore that we partnered with and they've got signed copies where you can pre-order. And yeah, and I just, I just did the audio book for it. So if you like kind of like weirdly high pitched raspy voices with a lisp, you can go pre-order the uh, you can go pre-order the book, the Audible book. 
It's going to be a lot of fun to listen to the audio book. I can imagine. (laughs) (laughs) I went full bore. Like, I think the producer was looking at me sometimes through the glass. Like, is he okay? I was like, I'm trying to have a moment here. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I, for one, man, cannot wait to get a hardcover copy uh, for myself. Listen to the audio book too. I'm a huge fan of it already. Um, Like I said to to the, the audience before I was privileged to get a PDF version and I'm loving it. Honestly, it's, it's a great read. So if you trust my judgment, go and get a copy of the book. <laughs> if that's if that means anything. Um, but Josh, man, I got two quick final questions for you, if that's okay with you. I just noticed the time. Sure. So I want to be respectful of you. Um, but what do you love the most about yourself and your story? Oh, I'm, I'm really good at making fun of myself. The love part. Now that's challenging. Um, I, I love, I love that I never gave up and I love that I was able to, you know, I, I, I talk about like when I, when I pivoted to social media, I had a lot of social media success early on with the, with the app Vine and then eventually YouTube and Instagram and Twitter. And it became this great revenue source and it became this great way to access my audience. and. But there were certainly some issues of optics and people who were critical of me and going from traditional TV and film to social media, it felt like sort of this weird sort of consolation prize, or if you can't make it there, then you do this. And and we know that line is blurred more so than ever. But at that time, it was sort of like this weird sort of status class. And I never, I never self-judged myself. I decided that I'm an artist and I want to make content and whether I'm shooting it on my phone or, you know, on a 60, you know, million dollar show on Disney plus doing Turner and Hooch. Like it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like I'm here to perform. I hope if I do my job well, I can give an audience a reprieve for 10 minutes or two hours from their worries the challenges in their life. And so I, I think that's probably the thing I'm most proud of was that, I didn't allow people's opinions to um, dissuade me from creating. Mm. I love how you said you didn't give up. Mm. Mm. That's powerful, man. My final question for you, dude, this is my all time favorite question. I ask all my guests at the very end. It's a hypothetical one. So I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic for the sake of argument. But they've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? I would just want, I would just want it to all be videos of my kids. <laughs> That's it. I don't care. I I watch I watch videos of my my son. I I, I think my entire thank God I've got one of the newer iPhones. Not to brag, <laughs> because I, I I think I've got like a terabyte on my phone of literally and and then the most innocuous videos. I was watching my son the other day, the, today at the gym watching a video of him for the first time in his life playing tennis like um, earlier this year. So it would just be a highlight reel of of. I, I have one kid now, but by the time I'm a hundred, I plan to have like 20. It's going to be ridiculous. <laughs> and they'll resent me because I won't be able to support all of them, but, but the videos will be cute. How does Paige think about that? 20 kids. <laughs> <laughs> She'll only be responsible for two or three. And then, you know, it'll be my other wives. I'm kidding, Paige. I'm joking. Please don't leave me. I think that is a perfect way to send <laughs> to wrap up this conversation. But Josh, Jay, man, what a pleasure! Thank, thank you so you, much, man. dude. You're epic. Honestly, thank you for for joining me today on the Storybox podcast. Could have spoken to you for hours, man. Dude, what a pleasure! I'm I'm a fan of yours, and I feel like we're very much um, similar humans. So it's it's such an honor. You're you're great at this. Thank you for having me. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guests today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the Storybox 
on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.